Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Asset managers, ICO issuers, and other institutional players, it's time to safeguard your cryptocurrency. Partner with Digital Asset Custody Company, or DAC. Purpose-built for secure, flexible, institutional-quality cold storage solutions. Learn more at digitalassetcustody.com. My guest today is Silicon Valley venture capitalist and longtime crypto investor, Bill Tai. Welcome, Bill. Hi, Laura. Thank you. A couple months ago, I heard about a theory that you have about electricity replacing oil and how that relates to crypto. I found it really interesting. Can you describe it now? Yeah. Uh, basically, if you think about the, what, what currencies are and think back to when the dollar was, the modern dollar was created, you can think of the period that uh, people call Bretton Woods. And right after the end of World War II, you had a situation where most of the world's industrialized uh, economies had been destroyed and governments needed to create some sense of confidence. So they called all the major Western powers to Bretton Woods and simply declared that the, the dollar would be tied to gold. And there was a reference standard. You could actually take your dollar to the U.S. Federal Reserve, turn it in, and walk away with little pieces of gold. And uh, based on that, the other currencies that were, uh, you know, like the lira and the franc and the mark, etc., those were all referenced off of the uh, the gold standard, so they were kind of ratioed to the dollar. And then, you know, once that was uh, set as a standard, people basically were given currency to, and they said, "Gentlemen, start your engine." So, new economy started. That system only lasted from 1944 until 1972. In the 70s, there was a uh, the the government of France actually took their gold and brought it to the Federal Reserve to cash it in. And President Nixon, at that point, realized that if France did that, and everybody else did that, that there would no longer be any gold inside uh, the U.S. banking system. So they basically took the dollar off of the gold standard, and it, it floated, and gold went ballistic. The shift basically took the dollar to the uh, the petrodollar, as we call it today. And if you think about the function of a currency now, nations that can accumulate capital through trade surpluses, they basically are storing economic productivity because the uh, you know in the in the era of the industrial revolution, you have uh, oil as uh, kind of the source of um, of economic value creation. So. By storing dollars in their foreign reserves, nations are basically storing a call on economic productivity. But everyone today in our circles, the root of productivity is no longer oil-based. It's electron or electricity-based. If you think about 
a scenario where you had to either cut off your access to oil or cut off your access to electricity immediately and forever, you know what you'd choose. You know, basically everything we do today is based on electricity and electrons. So I think what's happening is that we're basically going through a phase where currencies and the economic storage of potential value or value is based on electrons and the functioning of electrons, not so much on oil anymore. So that's that's kind of the general thesis. It's super interesting. I want to go back, though, to how you were talking about how we went off the gold standard and then the dollar became what you called the petrodollar and how dollars came to represent storage of economic activity. So what is the petrodollar? Well, so so the uh, during the uh, kind of the, the period where the British and the Americans were sort of, I'd hate to say colonizing, but um, redistricting the Middle East, they, uh, they basically forced the oil-rich countries to accept U.S. dollars as payment for the natural resources coming out of the Middle East. And what happened in that period is that there was basically a recycling that was going on where where if um, the U.S. paid for oil with lots of U.S. dollars, those dollars would then cycle back and be loaned back to the United States, which you know historically has run deficits every year to uh, the tune of you know tens of trillions of dollars now. And so the oil barrels effectively became the the proxy or for for the value underlying the dollar. And thus the the term petrodollar, because you basically had a dollar that you could exchange for barrels of oil, which, um, again, were the root of the economies of all of the industrialized nations. And then to go to these sort of like electron or electricity backed dollars, what exactly makes that happen? Well, so we're we're in a different era now. So people talk about, you know, the the fourth industrial revolution. The uh, third industrial revolution was was the one that was oil based, where machinery became the root of work and productivity. We're now in a period where we're we're basically riding a wave of decentralization, and this basically ties to the notion of you know what is work and what has been work for most of modern history. If you think about what um, what work was like, you know if you if humans have been around this planet in some shape or form as you know primates or other for you know almost millions of years they've been civilized if you can call it that for maybe a hundred thousand years for most of that period human work was not structured if you thought about what you did during the day you might have five different jobs you might go and pick berries in the morning and fish in the afternoon and you know hunt at night or what have you with different groups of friends so Humans lived in sort of a flexible fabric where they could apply their productivity to what they needed to do at the moment with different groups of people at all times. It wasn't until the Industrial Revolution changed the productivity model to one that was uh, sort of uh, concentrated, where those that controlled the machinery um, and therefore controlled capital assets and controlled the capital to buy and build those assets turned other human beings into sort of commoditized uh, elements of a big machine. And it's really only been in place for two or three generations. If you think about your parents and their parents, they probably worked in this kind of a system where they had a job where they thought they'd have life lifetime employment possibly with a big company. And the people before that, none of them did. 
they were all sort of living in this, you know, flexible fabric. Software is basically deconstructing all of that infrastructure and turning people back into individual units that are sort of like, uh, you know, molecules on a giant fabric that can abstract off that that fabric and connect with others digitally into communities of interest that that interest them at the moment. And if you think about, you know, all the young people that I know, they all work on four or five or six jobs every day. You know, so I think we're kind of going uh, back to what humans had been for 99% of their history. And, and electrons and electronics are part of that. So I think uh, the new productivity model is really based on uh, flexible work, um, an electronic digital lifestyle. And that is now, I think, the basis for all of the high-value marginal productivity in the world's economy. This is really, really fascinating. This sort of lines up with some thoughts I've been having about how I think the decentralized crypto networks, if they take off, as a lot of people hope they will, they could lead to a lot more people freelancing, sort of like this expansion of the gig economy and and probably even a more true gig economy and that um, those gigs won't be ones where people are being hired by big companies, but instead are sort of like working for themselves and connecting over peer-to-peer networks. Um, but I before we... Oh, keep going. Yeah, no, you're spot on. I think, I think basically what you see, and, and you see it in, in what we call the, uh, you know, ICOs or the cryptocurrencies. Each one of the cryptocurrencies is effectively a community of interest that believes in a certain thing. And if you think about the evolution of economies over history, um, you know, I, I often refer to Neil Ferguson's book, uh, The Ascent of Money. He basically chronicles value exchange in different forms from, you know, sh- uh, sh- pebbles, shells, feathers, all the way up to credit default swaps. And if you think about each of those mediums of exchange, they had a group of people that believed in that community and or believed in that uh, that asset. And I think that's where we are again, where we now have any individual in a position where they can be a part of a community or multiple communities of interest and participate in things that they believe in in a flexible way and still be very productive. In fact, maybe more productive than when they were stuck in a, you know, little part of a box as part of a big, mach- you know, machine inside the industrial revolution like a hamster on a wheel. <laughs> well, speaking of animals, <laughs> in a second yes. we're going to be turning to another topic that involves conservation and everybody's favorite crypto kitties who were on Unchained earlier this week. But first, a quick word from our fabulous sponsors. If you're an institution managing crypto assets, you need a secure custody solution. Digital Asset Custody Company, or DAC, is the leading purpose-built institutional quality cryptocurrency custodian. DAC leads the industry in security and service. Experts in the tech, cybersecurity, and investment worlds, DAC's founders built the system that today's major players in asset management rely on. DAC is in production on over 90 tokens. Secure, efficient, egress transactions. That's DAC. Custody with DAC. Visit Digital Asset Custody for more info. I'm speaking with Bill Tai. 
So that was maybe not the world's smoothest transition, but <laughs> um, you are doing some work with CryptoKitties and it's tied to conservation. Why don't you describe this project for listeners? Yeah. So uh, when I first, uh, you know, so I had heard about CryptoKitties when they first um, were uh, in that hackathon and exploded out of nowhere to become the most popular uh, or the most highly transacted uh, consumer application in blockchain. And um, some of uh, the some of your audience knows that I, I did uh, start a 501c3 that has been um, a registered 501c3 with the IRS for for almost uh, 10 years now. And it's uh, it's been recently renamed to Acti Global, which stands for athletes, conser- uh, athletes, conservationists, technologists, artists, and innovators. And we do a lot of work with, uh, with conservation groups in general, um, many, uh, focused on the ocean. But when I saw CryptoKitties, it just occurred to me that that behavior would be perfect for, uh, stimulating people to, to fund, uh, endangered species rather than just cats. You know, of course, it's a lot of fun to buy and sell and speculate on, on the value of digital cats. But I immediately saw the potential to basically swap out a cat for possibly a rhino, you know, and, uh, and I thought to myself, well, wow, what if there were a way to basically get DNA samples of every single endangered animal on the planet and create a blockchain based registry of all of them and then open that up? to the public so that people could basically support those in the same way that people sort of name stars or adopt a child in, in Africa. And so I, uh, I did fund crypto kitties and I told them at that time, I'm going to fund you guys, but I want to do an experiment. And, uh, we ended up, uh, working together to launch something called the Hanu kitty, which is a, uh, a special edition cat with a turtle shell and the proceeds, uh, from the auction of that cat. Uh, and it did raise $25,000. Ended up going to, uh, several places. We, uh, we supported, uh, Captain Paul Watson and the Sea Shepherd in a, uh, an active turtle conservation effort that they have going on in Antigua. Uh, we supported, uh, Unite BVI, which is, uh, part of the Virgin Unite family of, of, uh, charities. And then some of it, uh, went to Ocean Elders, which is a group that basically lobbies to create, um, marine conservation and marine protected areas. And some of it went to Acti Global to, to continue to fund some of the charitable work that we do. And are you still working on that idea with the DNA for these endangered species? Yes, I am. So um, <laughs> there is a uh, there, I actually have just recently lined up two of the four founders of Farmville. Uh, Farmville, if, if many of you have heard of that uh, game, if you haven't played it, basically it's a uh, it's effectively a virtual world where you pay U.S. dollars or other you know currency, and you get Farmville cash, and you could spend that Farmville cash on anything from virtual tractors to virtual fertilizer or other things to grow virtual plants. And uh, that game and environment has generated over a number of years, $3 billion in cumulative revenue. So the uh, I've been basically working with uh, those two and some other folks on a, on a way to basically tie specific endangered animals uh, to a marketplace. Um, I w- I'm in talks, for example, with um, Sir Richard, uh, Richard Branson. I, I do run uh, something called the Necker Blockchain Summit. And uh, uh, Sir Richard has a bunch of properties around the world, including a ranch down in South Africa called Ulusaba. And on that ranch, he has some rhinos and some elephants, some giraffes and leopards. 
and I had a conversation with him when we were in our uh, in our last uh, uh, blockchain summit about the possibility of taking those animals, for example, and uh, having a digital representation of them. All of those animals are unique. They are tagged. They have uh, unique identities. And they could, for example, be placed onto a marketplace where instead of uh, you know just buying a digital plant or cat, there's a way to basically use a, a cryptocurrency to purchase that uh, that naming right, uh, for example, and also get a tax deduction in the process. And if it's done right, there's a way to basically allow the transfer of that digital animal, each individual digital animal, to different parties over time. And each time there's a step up in value, there's an incremental uh, donation to uh, a charitable cause. And the uh, the recipient of the uh, proceeds from the, the new buyer would would share in the profit. So there, there'd be a piece that is a, a capital gain and a piece that is a donation that offsets that capital gain. So it, it could be among the first examples of tying natural speculative behavior in financial markets to conservation funding. And that that's what I'm working on right now with Perkins Coie and Deloitte uh, in terms of a structure that uh, that will work given the uh, tax laws that uh, we see in our economy and a few others. That's super interesting. But one thing is that the financial benefit would be sort of diffuse, uh, whereas, you know, the way that you described it, where there might be individual animals that you could support. Would there ever be an incarnation where, for instance, my purchase of a particular crypto kitty, you know, that's designated for a certain rhino would maybe, for instance, fund like an anti-poaching, uh, I, I don't even know what you would yes. call them, like a staff member, you know, on the reserve where they are or something like that. Is Is that kind of where you're going with this? Yes. So, so, you know, the, the beauty of, uh, the, of cryptocurrencies and the blockchains that we work with in the world today is that you can build on top of them smart contracts. And, uh, you know, we'd like to first get the, so we did that first test with the Hanu Kitty to prove that we could launch an animal, generate demand for it, receive funds, pass them along to real active conservation groups to set a precedent. Going forward, there would be ways, I think, to move it from just a digital cat that supported a, a several charities to specific animals, as I mentioned, and then beyond that to active campaigns. And then there is definitely a way to layer on top of that a smart contracts. So you can imagine a scenario where either if you, Laura, were purchasing a you know crypto rhino that lived on Richard's ranch and you wanted to designate funds in a specific way, there could be a checklist for different uh, boxes that where you could allocate the percentage of the incremental, you know, of the, of the proceeds that you are paying with to go to certain things. So there's some transparency and visibility, which is another issue that I think uh, the world uh, uh, struggles with when they donate to charitable causes because they don't know where the funds go. So blockchain, I think, could provide transparency both to the recipients and to the funding that goes to the recipients. And then what if, let's say I did that for one specific animal, but then the animal died anyway, maybe of illness or old age, or even because maybe there actually was a poacher that succeeded in yeah. taking the animal down. What would happen to the trading of that crypto kitty at that point? 
I do not know the answer to that. I guess, you know, we'll see what the market brings on something like that. And, and we are trying to think through scenarios like that. There are some unique uh, things that I think that could be done in certain cases. So um, earlier this year, there was a, quite a famous um, white rhino named Sudan that passed away. And he was the last remaining uh, northern white rhino. And uh, there is ac- actually an active campaign now to take his DNA and plant it into an embryo and impregnate one of the remaining or both of the remaining last two female white rhinos to try to bring that species back. You know, if this uh, system could be up and running in a scenario like that going forward, there might be a way to basically, you know, if the animal dies, you do a crowdfunding to to fuel the creation of uh, the recreation of that species or that animal. You know, I, I, there there are actually uh, companies. I know this is gonna this gets kind of interesting in terms of ethics, but there are companies in California and other places that will actually allow you to clone your cat, your real life cat, and. Uh, and have your pets be sort of everlasting, and um, you know I don't I don't want to open open that, that discussion, but <laughs> I think you know having the ability to get financial wherewithal from individuals or crowds to do things like that could be a key to keeping certain species alive for our future generations. That's super interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you'll see when you listen to the. Crypto Kitties episode. I'm a little bit skeptical about some of this, but obviously this is so new and I'm definitely not saying that nobody should experiment. I used to work for an environmental organization, so I definitely feel that all these topics are near and dear to my heart. Well, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks so much for coming on Unconfirmed. Thank you. Always always a, a pleasure to be on. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast episode. New episodes of Unconfirmed come out every Friday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Raylene Galapali, Frashel Recording, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Nuss. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.